Like there's this big like leap of faith where from like year three to year nine, I was making less money than I was in year one and two because I was reinvesting every bit of, of, of profit back into the business, buying trucks, hiring people, testing things. And, and, and so like it takes a long-term vision to grow that type of business to eight figures because there's going to be this big chasm where you're just pouring all the money back into it because you have faith that one day you'll have a big business. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today on the podcast, I have Brian Clayton. He is the CEO of GreenPal. It is essentially the Uber for landscaping. And he has built it up to be uh, very, very impressive in size. They're now at over 200,000 active users. But his journey is very impressive because it started in high school. He was mowing lawns. And instead of getting a real job, he's like, hey, I'm going to keep this going. So he came out of business school and he grew his lawn care company in Tennessee to be over 150 people ended up selling it to a company and had enough money to never work again. But instead, he launched a SaaS product, um, taught himself to learn how to code with his co-founder, made a lot of mistakes, and now they're, they're really on a tear. But this one's fun. We talk about how to find the right co-founder. He has a test he uses, the $10 million test to see if someone's the right co-founder. He talks about growing a company and firing yourself from different roles and the skill sets you need to pull that off and why it's so hard. He talks about growing a company and self-funding it and then how he got his first 100 customers to his first 1,000 customers. This one is packed with with knowledge and frameworks and wisdom. It's, It's a really good one. So if you're starting something, looking to see if you're finding the right partner, um, hopefully this episode is for you. Brian, I'm excited to get into Green Pal and what you've built because you've landed the plane quite well on going from a service-based business to a technology business very well. But before we dive in, I actually want to start from the beginning. Like, How did all of this get started as far as you becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on your show, Jim. It's, it's great to be here. So yes, I'm CEO and, and co-founder of GreenPal, an app that is the Uber for lawn mowing services. So if you are a homeowner, you have your grass cut, you don't want to call around on Craigslist or Facebook, you just download GreenPal and pop your address in and you'll get somebody come out and mow it for you. GreenPal is a 10-year overnight success. We've been at this for <laughs> a little over 10 years and now we're nationwide in the United States with a few hundred thousand people using it. And before GreenPal, I actually had a landscaping business. I started mowing grass in high school as a way to make extra cash and little by little grew that little lawn mowing business all through high school, all through college. And, and when I graduated college, I had to make a decision. Was I going to go into the job market and basically take a pay cut because I was doing pretty well in the, in the, in the landscaping business? Or was I going to be a lawn guy the rest of my life? I didn't really want to be a lawn guy. There was, there was nothing really alluring about that. And I didn't, I didn't really understand why I went to business school to, to do that. But, 
But I thought, well, you know, maybe this is my lane. Maybe this is the thing that I could build a big business in. And I made a little business plan with what I learned in business school and just started working through like one level of the game at a time and, and built that landscaping business to over eight figures a year in revenue, 150 employees. And then eventually was able to navigate it through the nuances of getting it acquired in 2013. So 15 years just started with me and a push mower, eventually a me and 90 crews going out every day and then getting acquired, which, which doesn't happen very often in, in a service-based business like that. And then after that, I took some time off. I got bored. I went through like an existential crisis because I didn't have a mission to like pour my soul into anymore. And I didn't really anticipate that. I didn't, I sold that business thinking I was just going to lay on a beach and take it easy. But that lasted for like three months. And I thought, well, okay, what am I going to do now? And I thought, well, well somebody's going to build an app that works like Uber, but for lawn mowing services. Why can't that be me? And it was like naivete as an asset. I didn't really understand anything about how to build a tech product or how to get a marketplace going. But uh, I just recruited two co-founders and and we all had a chip on our shoulder and we just started working on it little by little. And now here we are 10 years in and we've got the nation's largest network of lawn care services that you can hire, like buying something on Amazon. I have a million questions now. And I think you could maybe say like if you do one successful exit, sure, we could say you're lucky. But if you successfully build two companies, it's clearly skill, which you have done. But as we go back to the beginning, like I also had a very small lawn care company. I mowed lawns on my block. I did not end up selling it and growing it to 150 people. So talk to me about having this side hustle that all of a sudden becomes a business. And I want to get through like, what superpower did you have? Were you like lazy? Where was your asset to where you're like, I don't want to mow these lawns. Let me get at delegating and managing. When did it go from you pushing a mower to actually a, a business? Yeah. To your point, the lawn care industry and really any sort of home services is a great way to cut your teeth on what it is to run a business because nobody, nobody teaches us how to run a business in high school. They don't even teach you in college. If you go to business school, they don't actually teach you how to run a small business. So running a lawn care business is a great way to kind of cut your teeth on what it means to do basic marketing, do basic operations and customer service and all of the basic bookkeeping and all these things. So it's a great industry for that, but it's also a hard industry to scale because it's low barriers to entry. It's very competitive. The margins are razor thin. It's, it's challenging to differentiate yourself in, in a competitive marketplace like that. And so in, in business itself, you know, running a business, a small, medium business is, is, is hard anyway. And so for me, the, the way I kind of went through it was I was self-employed, if you will, for the first three to four or five years, it was me and a couple of helpers. But if I didn't, I didn't have a business, you know, if I left for a year and came back, there wouldn't be anything there. I mean, probably, <laughs> probably if I left for a weekend and, and came back, there wouldn't be anything there. Right. So yeah. it, was, it was very much me holding it together. And it was probably, that's, that's probably the way to characterize it all the way up to maybe 10 employees. It was very much like, a hand, a very hand-to-hand -hand combat, very much organized chaos. And that's the way most small businesses operate. And if, they really, if, if, the, if the owners and founders of those businesses were really honest with themselves, they would understand they're, they're self-employed and they don't really own a business. And 
for me, I, I decided, well, I want to like own a real business in this industry. And I, and I, and I know it's possible because I would go to these conferences in the industry. And so believe it or not, there's a big trade organization for the landscaping industry. They call it the green industry. And you wouldn't know this, but it's, it's a, like a, a 99 or a hundred billion dollar industry. It's a huge industry in the Jeez. United States. Yeah. And, and so there's these big conferences and, and so you would go to like one of these conferences and you would, you would tour the facility of like the biggest landscaping outfit in Chicago. They had it one year and you would listen to the founders of this family run business and they're doing like $70 million a year in revenue. And then, and then you would hear a talk from another guy who just sold his business for $30 million and he was doing like 40 or $50 million a year in revenue. So you would, I saw these like inspiring proof points that it was possible to build a big business in this kind of non-sexy, non-glamorous, below the radar type of industry. And so I just kind of borrowed from everything I could meeting with these folks from other cities and applying those those lessons to what 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 I was doing with my little business in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was really lucky because Nashville uh, in the early 2000s was was booming, still is, but was like growing. You had uh, new shopping centers, new apartments, new neighborhoods, new new office complexes. All of them needed the services I was selling, whether it be maintenance or installations. And so kind of the opportunity was there. I was part of a a growing, vibrant local economy that I could grow my business in and then and then borrow and rob and steal some of these best practices and try to work on the business while working in the business, but but also work on the business, developing a sales process, developing a better operations process, a better employee training process. Like the concept of 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 training somebody in this industry, like most of the time you just throw a guy on a crew and it and two years later maybe he knows what's going on. Well, I, I was able to develop a process where we could train that that guy up in like a week and he would be a pro, like a horticulturist in like a month. And so all of these things, just working on the business, treating it almost like like McDonald's, McDonald'sifying it in a way, like the big guys were, is how I how I was able to navigate you know, just going from me and a couple of employees to me and 150 people. And there's also a big gap whenever you're trying to do that, where, where it's like, if you stayed small, you would make more personal income for a very long time. Like there's this big like leap of faith where from like year three to year nine, I was making less money than I was in year one and two, because I was reinvesting every bit of, of, of profit back into the business, buying trucks, hiring people, testing things. And, and, and so like, it takes a long-term vision to grow that type of business to eight figures. Cause there's going to be this big chasm where you're just pouring all the money back into it because you have faith that one day you'll have a big business. And that's how it, that's how it worked out. Yeah. You know what? I really relate to that because two things, like there's the book called the messy middle that talks about like we glorify the start phase, the light bulb, and then the exit. But then there's a lot that happens in between that can make or break you. And then there's this other book, Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits, that talks about the the black hole in business. Over 20 people, like I think it's like 20 to 75 people in between one to 5 million in revenue. And I say that because I have a big question for you. And this is all self-serving because I am a service-based business. I have a growth marketing agency. We're at 40 people and we're definitely in that black hole. And 
the question I have for you is like, how do you go from the person that's doing all the things working in the business to the person working on the business? Because like for me, I struggle. Like I've been able to fire myself from certain things, but that last thing, which is sales, I can't get out of. And it's like, that's the final missing piece. And I feel like once I can do that, like when you're able to do that, it allows you to go to that next level as an operator and as a CEO. So for you, this is the longest winded question ever, but sorry, like for you, what were those like big inflection points where like, oh, wow, I finally delegated this or I up-leveled on this that led you have those like non-linear leaps in growth? Yeah, you know, whether it was building my first business or my second business, there, there's never been like this moment for me where it was like, aha, one move on the chessboard and I've won the game. <laughs> like there's never been like that hockey stick moment. It has always been like, like to use American football as a metaphor, like the running game, two and three yards at a time. I've never been able to take any shots downfield. <laughs> if I have, it's always like throwing the ball out of the end zone or something. Like it's never, um, I've never had a completed pass on a Hail Mary. Intercepting again, crap. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I threw on a couple of interceptions. And, and so I I'm in 22 years, I've never had that workout. So it's always been ground and pound, just just slow experiments, trying new things. That didn't work. Okay. And in that messy middle that you're talking about, the 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 black hole, like that to, that is the hardest part. And, and and any movie you've ever seen about entrepreneurship. Like they fast forward over that part. Like that part is always like set to like a musical montage. And it's like, you know, like, like, like what was the movie about Ray Kroc that came out a few years ago? Oh yeah. Yeah. The McDonald's one. Yeah, yeah. What a great movie that was. And, and like, but like when Michael Keaton, Ray Kroc was going from his third location with rain pouring through the, through the, through the leaks in the roof and, and like it wasn't working to you know, you know, he's got a hundred locations. That's that, that. That was like five minutes. Right? Yeah. And, and so my point is that part's not fun, not sexy. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to see it in a movie. And you just, you just grind your way through it. The, the ways that I have gotten through that. Well, first off is it, one thing is it's okay to have a profitable 10, 20, 30, 40 person business. And it doesn't have to be a huge hundred person company. So that's one mm -hmm. thing is to ask, ask yourself that because that's kind of what I had to do with, with my, with my first landscaping business, I'd gotten 150 people and, and to get to the next level, I was going to have to open up a branch in Atlanta and one in, in Chattanooga and one in Memphis. And I, I just didn't have the appetite to do that. So you, you mm -hmm. ask yourself, do you have the appetite for the next level? And if you do, like, go for it. But if you don't, then it's okay to, like, make a bunch of money and then, and then reinvest that money into durable sources yeah. of income, you know, like, like real estate and equities and, and things like that. So I've seen a lot of, man, I have seen a lot of blue-collar millionaires that, that are worth 10 20 30 $40 million that, that, that got there with dump trucks, you know, and, yeah. and, and bulldozers and stuff. And, and they never had these grand visions of of creating the biggest company in in the market they just wanted to make profit and reinvest it and mm -hmm. stuff so so that that's an option you know you just you stay there but you know i was never happy with that i believe if you're not 
gaining ground, you're losing ground in, in life and business. So I always wanted to grow and, and get to the next level. So, so what do you do? You know, you, you, you first thing you try to do in, in a service-based business like yours is, is there any examples of somebody at the next level who's crushing it in a way that you're not? And what can you learn from them? And, you know, and, 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 and what can you rob and steal from them? And, and, in terms of ideas and best practices. And, and the other thing is, you know, where is the business breaking down in, in terms of automation and streamlining it? You, and you mentioned sales, you know, you, you, you have to like remove yourself from all of the headache of running the business, maybe on like for three hours a week somehow, or four hours a week somehow on a Saturday or Sunday. This is what I used to do and, and come in on a Saturday or Sunday and just like, okay, how am I going to build the best end-to-end sales process and training system to get somebody up to speed who doesn't necessarily know the industry. Because one thing I used to always do that I screwed up when I had salespeople was I would, I would try to like hire somebody with industry experience. Yeah. I thought they knew, I thought they knew something that, you know, was like magical. And then I would try to like teach them to be a salesperson and I would try to teach them to be a motivated, driven salesperson. And what I learned was that you can't motivate unmotivated people. You really have to, you have to find that sales driven person, that motivated sales type oriented person. And then you have to teach them the industry, teach them your mm-hmm. system end to end, like a step-by-step prospe- process that might take you two or three years to build. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the book predictable revenue is a great book about how to, how to build that end to end sales process. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. You know, and, and it might take you two years of of, of working on the business in, in terms of developing that if that's your sticking point. But I think the 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 good thing is, is that you have maybe identified what the sticking point is. And so you know I'm not able to remove myself from this piece of it. And so you know that you just got you have to spend your on the business time on that one thing. But it may take you a while. You know, and the good news is is these days at least we have the ability to to learn from others very easily who've been there, done that. And we have tools to, to, to help execute these things. Whereas when I was building my sales team for the first time in 2005, we didn't have software as a service. There was no yeah. YouTube university. This stuff was yeah. very much whiteboard, whiteboards and, <laughs> and spreadsheets and, and, and hand-to-hand combat. And it sucked. You did a lot of the same things over and over and over and over again. And it was like pushing on a string. Whereas nowadays you can avoid a lot of that stuff. You can automate a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I, I like your point though. Of one, you see like a potential light at the end of the tunnel. You're going to these conferences like, wow, you can build an amazing business in this category. So it's like game on. You're focusing on the right thing. And then it's like you mentioned stealing from others, getting inspiration. Where was like your superpower? Because I don't think we should gloss over you built a 150 person company. Is your superpower in like, you're good at productizing, operationalizing this company, creating SOPs and getting it to scale that you mentioned like the McDonald's of landscaping or was your skill, your superpower like marketing or was your skill set in just like, I feel like my skill set is in pain tolerance where it's like I can just like endure the pain that others won't to like keep things going. Yeah, you know, one thing I learned early on was Mark Cuban has a good quote that sales cures all. And, and I learned that, you know, five, six years into the business that I wasn't in the landscaping business. I was in the sales business and I had to 
And, you know, I was over indexing on, well, we've got great trucks and we've got great pieces of equipment and we, our employees have uniforms and, and we train our employees and we really care. And, and, uh, you know, our properties look immaculate. And, and what I didn't realize is like all of that was table stakes. Like that's what the customer expected. Like they don't, they don't care about all the things that went into that. And so like, I had to have that just to play the game. And, and I thought that somehow made my business different. And I thought that somehow was a value proposition and it, and it wasn't. And I was really operating in a, in a competitive marketplace where if you didn't have a compelling value proposition, you were selling on one thing and that's price where you're the cheapest. And that's mm, a great yeah. way, to, great way to go out of business. And so I had to like do two things. I had to develop a, a value proposition and I, and I had to develop a sales process and a sales team to be the engine to get us from, I think at the time we might've been at a million or 2 million in revenue to, to get us to five, seven and 10 and took a long time. And, but that, that's really what I focused on. I, I focused on the, the quality of the services and training of team members and all of that operational core as table stakes, like just that's, you have to do that. But then where we were going to innovate and where we were really going to spend a lot of time improving and, and honing and, 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 and experimenting on was the sales process. And how yeah. do we, how do we differentiate ourselves from our competitors and how do we prospect better and how do we know about when, when this office complex before a shovel even sticks in the ground, how do we know about it's going to come online and we know who the developers are and we know who to reach out to and we know when to pitch them and we, we, we can be the, the first person in the door to, to try to get that business. It took a long time to develop that process, but, but you, we had to build that sales engine to propel us to, to eight figures in that business or else, you know, it's would have gotten stuck at 20 employees and 2 million. Yeah, you'd be in that black hole where a lot of businesses go to die. So you clearly figured out, you, you, you grow it and you build it to sell. Talk to me through the psychology of going through the acquisition and then at the other end of it, like, and I'm not asking for the dollar amount, but like, talk to me, like, is that exit? Is that like FU money? You now have five islands. Are you like in a point you're like, I'm good. Like, what does that do? Because I don't know if you're someone that like had a chip on the shoulder, you're working to like prove yourself, but then does that change your psychology? Like what's your state? Cause you mentioned like you're going to be on a beach or an Island for a few months. Like talk through like the emotional roller coaster of that. Yeah, it, it was, it, it was liberating and freeing because I mean, I didn't have a yacht in the Caribbean, but I also didn't have to worry about groceries ever again or rent or yeah. mortgage payment or anything like that. Like all of my, I guess you could say living expenses and future days on this planet were paid for from mm -hmm. that moment forward. So that felt good, you know, and it, and it kind of frees you up to kind of take a shot at the end zone maybe or, 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 or <laughs> to try to hit a home run rather than just get on base. I guess you could say I was on first or second base. I hit a single or a double. It was not a home run. It was not a grand slam. It was, there was no, there was no, there was no big yachts and there was no, there was no second and third homes. But I, I was debt free and and I didn't have to work anymore. So that that was nice. That's cool. yeah. yeah. And and I and I think I I I try to like encourage entrepreneurs and founders to hit that single or double, get that maybe you know, one, two, three, four, five million dollar exit. So so then you can swing for the fences on the second or third one. 
I think what 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 trips up a lot of founders is is that I mean they come out of the gates trying to swing for the fences and and it's hard to do that flat footed you know if you've never had some experience you know you never had a single an exit under your belt so you know that's how that's how it was for me and and the other thing was the guy that bought my business was a real arrogant dude but but he was worth like nine figures and really really successful in the industry he had taken a landscaping company public in the late nineties. And believe it or not, yeah, publicly traded company with like thousands of employees. So he, and and, and then sold all of that stock and made a ton of money. And now, and now he was rolling up, rolling up companies like mine and, 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 and every major market in the United States. And so real smart dude, but he was super arrogant and I didn't really like him, but (laughs) I, but I remember, I remember the day that, that after they bought the business. He gave me a piece of advice. He said, we said, listen, I'm going to give you some advice. You, you know, you've got this, we got this done. You've got all this money in your bank account now. Let me just give you a piece of advice. It's a lot easier to make a million dollars than it is to keep a million dollars. And, and I thought, well, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing to say. And he said, he said, (laughs) he said, there's going to be a lot of weird unsolicited invest, you know, people wanting you invest in stuff. And, and sure enough, like that day, the wire came in, my banker calls me out of the blue. I had, I've never received a call from my banker unless I was, over, <laughs> unless I was overdrafted. I never, he was like, Hey, you should come in and, and visit with yeah. our wealth management department. And it was almost like, it was a really weird. Cause he gave me this advice and an hour later, my phone rang. So, so that, that hit really hard. And so every dime I made from selling that business, I put back into single family real estate. So I just bought a bunch of rental properties and I got lucky because that time, 2013 was a good time to be buying up real estate, but I was like poor again. Like I had no money. It was all tied up in houses and, and yeah, they were cash flowing nice, but I was kind of on an allowance, which was good because that, that brought me back down to earth, made it to where I couldn't screw it up. And gave me this kind of stipend, if you will, of, of, of cash flow. And then when I was starting my second business, it kind of had to sing for its supper day one. I, it's not like I had all this money to plow into it. Right. Yeah. Which was, which was a really, really, really fortunate thing for how it turned out for me because that was a forcing function in building GreenPal for focusing on the customer and focusing on keeping customers and making some money so we could keep our head above water. Had I not done that, had I gone out and raised a bunch of money or poured all my money into it, we would have made a lot of dumb decisions not doing the, the hard work of, of focusing on the customer and nothing else. That's such a good point because you could have been sitting on that cash and it's like, oh, we need more developers. We need this for Green Pal, just throwing money at it. And little by little, you're just kind of eating away into that nest egg that you worked super hard for. Yeah, and you're not learning the hard lessons. You're not you're not confronting the problem, like you're papering over the problem. And and it's easier to throw money at the problem than to solve the problem. And so it's like we need more customers. Go get some money to buy more Facebook ads. Maybe we should call up fifty of the customers we had last month and figure out why they're not using us anymore, and then fix those problems. Right. If you don't have money, you have to do the latter. And as it turns out, like that's how you build a good product. And it's so easy to not do those hard things if you've got money to throw at the problem. 
I know. It, it, usually it's funny. You think money is your problem with the business, but a lot of time it's not, right? It, it's, right. You don't know your customer. Right. You don't have the right product. It's, it's other things. Right. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A-plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you, and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment, and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, Give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose. Okay, so let's go to GreenPal because you clearly know service-based businesses. You understand landscaping and like the, the lawn category. But now we're going into something that's more web-enabled. It's more technology-based. You mentioned co-founders. Talk about what you did that you believe was right, or maybe things you didn't do that were right with this second business that either gave you an unfair advantage or the way you approached it. Because I think people that are looking to make that leap are always interested in like, okay, how do you do this the right way to set it up for success? Yeah, I, I think whenever you're trying to start a new company or invent a new product in a space, you know, that, that authenticity can be a competitive advantage. And so I knew the landscaping business, spent 15 years in it and I knew it. I knew the problems that needed to be solved. I knew, I knew what would work and what wouldn't. So I had a lot of like unfair advantage starting the business because, because, because I knew all of these aspects and nuances of it. What I didn't know was the first thing about how to build a tech product. I didn't know how to code, didn't know how to build software, didn't, I'd never done any of that before. And so all of that kind of caught me off guard. I thought we could like outsource it and I thought we could just have, have a dev shop build what, what our vision was. And we tried that and we, we wasted like $150,000 of cash we pulled together ourselves and that hurt. And it took like nine months and they built this thing and you know it was probably half our fault because we didn't know what the hell we were doing we didn't know what to even tell them to build and and mm -hmm. so we had we had an app and a website and launched it and, and learned the hard lesson like if you build it they will not come and <laughs> and and so we you know we just wanted to at that point validate was this at least a good idea you know i, I one thing we were we were scared to death that we were way ahead of our skis and, and didn't have the, the skills we needed. So we were reading every book we, we could get our hands on. And so I, I was reading at the time, The Lean Startup by Eric Reese and, and every book in that orbit. There was another book called The Startup Owner's Manual and Four Steps of the Epiphany. And, and what those three books tell you in like 2000 pages is get out of the building and go talk to the handful of people who tried your crappy product. <laughs> and, so, and so that's what we did. 
And so we, we like, we had to pass out a bunch of door hangers to get a few people to use it, but we did that. And then we got a few people to use it. They tried it. And like, they would always tell us like everywhere we sucked, like, okay, I tried to sign up, but I didn't get any quotes or I signed up and I got quotes, but they were too high. Or I signed up, I got quotes and I hired one, but he didn't show up. Or I signed up, I hired one, they hired one, but then his mower was too big for the gate in the backyard. Or, or but he let the dog out. It was like a million problems. And, yeah. and, 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 and so they would tell us everywhere we sucked and where we let them down and, and why we were terrible entrepreneurs. But they never told us, they never, ever, ever, ever said, I don't need this. They mm. never said, like, this is a waste of time. What are you doing with your life? They always, like, were pissed off that the app sucked and it didn't work. So we took that as validation that, hey, this is a good idea. People wanted to download an app, push a button, and get this chore done. And so if we can just solve all of these problems by fixing them with the, with the, with the platform, then, then maybe we could build a real business here. But there was a hard reality to face. Like, this thing that we spent 200 grand on, it was like a piece of crap. It was, we couldn't iterate on top of it. We, uh, it yeah. was, it was like a black hole of, of, of messy code. So we had to start all over and we had to learn how to code while we were starting over. And so my co-founder went to a boot camp, and I like went to YouTube university and <laughs> it, it took a long time. It took like eight months, but we learned enough to like rebuild the whole damn thing in languages we understood. And then we were able to like slowly like relaunch slowly get a hundred customers, then get a thousand customers, then, then slowly build out a team of developers around us off of, off of like stewardship. Like, oh, here's what we need, what we need you to do because here's why we want it done this way. Rather than like abjuration, it wasn't like, like the first time we tried to, to outsource or, or delegate, it was through abjuration. It was, I don't understand the technology, you handle it. That's always going to blow up in your face. And so you want to delegate from stewardship. It was like, Here's how we do this. Here's why we do it this way. Here's when we expect to have it back. Here's how much, here's how much it should cost. And so it took us three years to like get to a point where we could do that. That is such good advice on delegating through stewardship. But hold on, just so I'm clear, you and your non-technical co-founder learned to code to essentially do that second version before you hired a developer? That's right. So ideally, you know, if, if you're going to try to do something like this, you get what Paul Graham calls a hacker and a hustler. So you get somebody who's a hustler, maybe, maybe they're just like a driven entrepreneur and, and they, they can run a sales process and they're not afraid to cold call a hundred people. And like, that's just who they are. And then you get a hacker. Maybe this, ha maybe this is the kind of person that has been tinkering on websites their whole life, or maybe they hacked into the high school website and changed their grades when they were 15 or something. <laughs> like, like, like that's the hacker. That's like, that's you. So you want, you want these two these two skill sets to come together. And then one plus one is like three or five or 10. And, and, but that's not what we had. I didn't know any hackers and there's not a whole lot of them in, in Nashville. And so I had three hustlers who, who, who I could trust. And I got extremely lucky. I was able to at least recognize that these, that these two guys wanted something more out of life. Much like me, they had a chip on their shoulder. They wanted to prove that they could do this. And so and so they had these kind of like internal motivations and, 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 and I knew that we could just figure out whatever we had to figure out. I knew we could learn whatever we had to learn. And so that's what we did, but it doesn't always work out that way. And so my advice on co-founders is like, 
don't start a business with somebody unless unless it's like your soulmate of a business co-founder. Like like and, and the way I would test that is just imagine like let's say okay you want to start a business with somebody and it's imagine you had 10 million dollars in the bank. Would you write them a check for 10 million dollars to start the business with you? And you might say, "Hell no. It's crazy. I would never do that." Well, then don't start the business with that person. If you would say, hell yes, I couldn't, I couldn't, I can't start this business without them. I need them. They have this thing I don't have. I have this other thing. We're going to crush it. Then start the business with that person. Because ultimately, like their equity is going to be worth $10 million. You may raise a round of funding where, where you're going to take dilution and, you know, that equity, you know, is going to be worth $10 million. Or you may, or you may be able to sell at a certain point, maybe for $10 million. And because now you both own half the business, that 10 turns into five. And you're like, damn, I wish I hadn't have taken them on. So it's like, you really, you really need to think that through. I got extremely lucky, but, but hope is not a strategy with these things. <laughs> that is such a good framework to think through with co-founders. Cause I think a lot of people that really want to be an entrepreneur will kind of rush into it cause they, they want to go, but man, when you play the long game, that can really cost you. Absolutely. You yeah, you you, you watch you, you you watch the movie The Social Network or something, and then you you come off of that, and you're like, I need to go get some co-founders, and we're gonna we're gonna take over the world. And a lot of times, if you're if you're truly honest with yourself, you're you're motivated to go get a co-founder as a coping mechanism That's because be, because you want some sort of validation that somebody else is just as crazy as you are about this idea. And so that's why you are seeking a co-founder and less so that this person has a certain skill set that, that combined with yours is, is, is going to make you guys unstoppable. So that's my, my advice on that. What's interesting is, wait, your first company, you were a solo founder. Is that correct? Correct. If the next one, you sought out co-founders. Usually you, you don't see that too much. I could be wrong. But like, what? Why were you seeing out co-founders? Because you easily could have bankrolled employees Please. to get the job done. Like, walk through that. And you mentioned like you like them because of the test. They had a chip on their shoulder. They're hustlers. Why did you want co-founders, especially because they weren't technical? Honestly, I was so. I I wouldn't be here today if had I not brought them on board because there was just so much work to do in those first three four years. I couldn't have done it all myself and I couldn't have outsourced it because I really wouldn't have known how to. So, you know, it worked out for me. But honestly, the reason why I recruited two co-founders, because I, I just thought that's what you were supposed to do when you're starting a tech business, because everybody else does it. And, and that's what Y Combinator and, and all of these, you know, accelerators, I don't, they're very, very hesitant to fund solo founders for that same reason, because there's just so much work to do. So that's why I, I did that. I just thought, well, you know, every other tech company has got one or two co-founders. I need to do that too. I need to follow this model. And so that was the, 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 the thought process. And so my, my point now a decade in is, Hey, you know, think that through because you can go it alone and you can, you can delegate these things as time goes on. Don't do it unless this person brings to the table a certain talent, a certain skill set that you don't have, but you have some things that they don't have. 
Whereas most people just rush into it. And, and here's the thing. It's like, we'll go on a million first million dates with, with, with a, with a potential spouse, you know, where, where it's like, we'll take, we'll, we'll go on dates with different people. And then if we ever get engaged, you know, we'll stay engaged for a year or two. And then, and then maybe we might go on some vacations together. Maybe we might move in with each other, try that out. And then we'll get married. That process can take like five years and 40 people or whatever. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, and so like, but we'll just start a business with somebody we met in a weekend or something. And the reality is, is you're going to be spending more time yeah. with, this, with this co-founder than you are your actual spouse. And depending on how things go, it's actually more difficult to unwind one of these contracts oh, yeah. than, it, than it is a traditional marriage. So it's, the whole thing is just so ass backwards. Yeah. Really think it through. Think about marrying the person because that's what it is. It really gets romanticized too, a little too much to where it's like, oh, it's serendipitous. Let's just go. I'm a marketer. You're a developer. Perfect. So that, that that's a really good call out. So, I mean, the scale that you've grown with with GreenPal is, is super impressive. And I'm always interested with tech uh, or SaaS-based founders, like talk about the different levels of customer acquisition, how you got your first, because you mentioned first hundred, the next a thousand, like. What had to change as your kind of growth change? Like you're probably scrappy early on, a lot of bottoms up stuff. And then when are you hitting that next level of, of growth? Is it like an SEO play? Is it paid? Is it like B2B bottoms up? Like talk about the growth because it's really impressive. There's a saying that first time founders worry about product. Second time founders worry about distribution. And so I think the point of it is, is that it, much like I was, if you have never done this before and you're a first time tech founder, you obsess over the product. What's the color scheme? What's the UI look like? <laughs> what, what, where's, well, how big is the button and where does it go? And, and what's our copy? Although copy is important, but like, what's the, what's the tone of the copy? And, and all of these things, like you obsess over the product and you, you want to build this beautiful product that is like world-class you do that for a year and it's really hard and then you realize holy holy crap this that was all the easy thing the hard thing is actually getting people to use this product this that's just this that this anybody can build something <laughs> anybody can like like i mean and building something's really hard but i mean anybody can build something like the hard thing is 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 trying to get people to use it and you know, you, you kind of see this in music a lot too, where, where there must be these talented musicians and like, that is mind boggling hard to play the guitar that good, but like their band is, 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 you know, can't get five people to their show. And, and it's like, so, so these dynamics play out in, in the music business and maybe all entertainment business. And then also startups because it's, it's harder to get people to use your app than it was to build it in the first place. And this was the realization I came to. The first like level of the game was just like hand to hand combat passing out flyers. That's how we got our first thousand customers. Nice. Yeah. And we and we would fall and so I think I think no matter what you're doing, the first hundred customers needs to be like belly to belly. It needs to be hand cranking because that's how you learn, you know, 
what's going to work, what's not, where are they finding the solutions to the problem you solve already so you can maybe you know, position yourself where they're already looking. You, you really have to do that. You have to hand crank that first level. But then you have to like take all of those learnings and then, and then I think you have to go all in on one channel and you really need to be the best in the world at, at what you do and also marketing in one channel. And it's not enough to innovate on product. You also have to innovate on distribution. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out what is that, what is that flywheel in the business that's going to cause it to grow. And it might take you a couple of, of years of trial and error, but it, it, ain't, it ain't just buying a bunch of Facebook ads. And, it, and it's not buying a bunch of Google AdWord ads. That, you'll go broke doing that unless you're very lucky and you have some kind of high margin thing. But even then, that's going to collapse. Those, those, those opportunities are going to collapse. And so you have to think of some sort of way that you're going to innovate on distribution. And for us, we, we learned early on when we were talking to the first several hundred customers of ours, whether it be at like their kitchen table or like I know the inside of every Starbucks of, of Nashville, Atlanta and Tampa, Florida. Those were our first three markets. And like I, I literally know the inside of every Starbucks in those markets because this is where I would meet, you know, suppliers and consumers on our platform. And, and I would always ask them, like, how do you normally find a lawn care service. And they would always say, well, you know, I'll call around. I'll, I'll ask a friend or family member, you know, for a referral and I'll call them. They never call me back. And then, <laughs> and then I'll like, out of desperation, I'll go to Google and I'll just like lawn mowing service nearby me. And, and I was like, I kept hearing that over and over again. And I thought, well, we can't afford Google ads, but we, we maybe we, we can compete in SEO. And, yeah. and then I started like peeling the layers of the onion away from that. And it's like, man, this is really hard. SEO is really hard. I, I, you would never think like just in something as humble as lawn mowing that the terms would be so competitive, but they are. And, and so I was like, well, we're never going to rank for lawn care Atlanta, but we can rank for lawn care Alpharetta, lawn care Smyrna, grass cutting yeah. services, Riverdale. You know, these are, these are little towns around Atlanta, little suburbs. And so that's what we did. We, we built a ground up kind of like bottoms up approach to, to getting some traction, getting some traffic from these lesser competitive keywords, and then started developing our SEO strategy and really understanding that, you know, not only did we have to build this product that solved all of the nuances for the lawn care business, but we also had to build this engine of content creation for, and we had to kind of carpet the internet with our content to, to, to be able to compete and develop the authority, build the authority in the, in the, in the industry and in the space. And in Google's eyes took a long time, took, took like three or four years to get some momentum going. But, and to this day, you know, we have, I don't know, two or 3000 people a day sign up and, and most of them come from Google's organic search and maybe, maybe 40% come from word of mouth, but, but Mm -hmm. 50, 60% is just, flat out grass cutting service in Lincoln, Nebraska yeah. or whatever, you know, that's how, that's how people find out about us. Yeah. I mean, that really starts to compound though when you do it. So that's impressive. I mean, you're doing it so hard because it's like a two-sided marketplace essentially, right? You got to build that's up right. the supply, the demand, and then the SEO initiative is like a business in itself, but, but it's a huge moat once you land that plane on those, those aspects, which is exciting. 
what, what what's the goal with Green Pal? You've already sold a company. Like, what's what's the goal here as you've been at it, and how do you think that? Yeah, you know, like to your point, I, I've already got a a little small win under my belt, maybe a double, and so now you know I'm kind of in the game for the love of the game, and yeah. and I made a promise to myself. I made two kind of promises to myself when I started this 10 years ago was that I was, I was always, no matter what, going to work on my best idea. And I guess I'm fortunate. I'm not terribly creative because I've had <laughs> one good idea in 10 years. And so this was it. <laughs> this was my one good idea. You know how like you read in the tech press, like so-and-so company, you know, this sold for a billion dollars or so-and-so company has raised a hundred million dollars. It seems like an overnight success. First off, it never is, but it seems that way. Yeah. I didn't have that idea, so it doesn't matter. Like, I don't have that FOMO because that was never yeah. my idea. I've had one good idea. Push a button, somebody should come mow the yard. So, <laughs> so that, that simple thing is what is what enabled me to get through, like, the slog of the first five, six, seven years. Because it's like, well, this is the only idea I got, so let's just keep pushing on mm-hmm. it. And so that was one promise. And then the second promise I made was I'm always going to just do what I wanted to do. And so as it stands right now, you know, I'm, I still enjoy running this company. I'm still intrigued by it. I'm still like, I'm still rewarded by the, the evolution of who I'm becoming alongside it. You know, I'm, I, I'm a completely different person today than I was 10 years ago when I started this business. So that's fun. And I'm going to keep doing it as long as that's the case. If it's not, mm-hmm. then, you know, we'll sell it or we'll get a professional CEO in. And we, we might yeah. be reaching a point where, you know, I'm not good at it anymore. You know, there's every, every company goes through three phases. There's the startup, the, the, the grow up, and then the scale up. And that messy middle, like you're talking about the grow up, I, you know, I think I'm suited for well, well suited for, but I'm not suited for the scale up. So, so maybe once we start reaching that, that point where it's like we're over a hundred people and there's managers of managers and I'm just not having fun anymore. Then maybe, then maybe we, we, we get somebody to, to, to run it or we take one of these exit, exit opportunities that that's, that's always presenting itself. I think it's good awareness, though, to know, like, what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you like to do, what you no- don't like to do at, in this growth journey. That way you can focus on that. But, um, Brian, that's super exciting. I have one last question as as we close out. and something I like to ask everybody. But as you look back at your professional career to date, what's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your career? It could be like an actual nice thing. It could be a tough love moment, like saying something you didn't want to hear, but you needed to hear. What's something that comes to mind with, with that question? Hmm. One of the nicest things, and this is this is good for for everybody here, for new founders. Uh, one of the nicest things anybody ever did for me was, you know, I talked about <laughs> when we ended our first year with twenty customers. One of them was like another guy who was in the same office building as us, who was also trying to start a startup, and like so he knew how hard it was, and and like. He, man, he would just get in there and use our product and try to offer all of this really good feedback. And like, it was terrible. It always broke and it never really worked right. But he would help, he would help like fill in the gaps and, and he, and he just got it. He understood that I needed somebody to hang in there with me. And like he, you know, he started using it then he still uses it to this day. And that was one of the nicest things that, that anybody ever did for me. And this, and this business was this dude just through sheer benevolence 
just wanted to help out a fellow founder with with his crappy app get to the next level. And 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 so my point is is if if you know somebody who's starting a startup, use their crappy product. Even if you don't yeah. need to, use it. Cause, and then tell them, don't tell them where the baby's ugly, but just tell them what they, you know, if they're a good founder, they'll, they want to hear it anyway. But like, yeah, just, yeah. just t- tell them, tell them wh- wh- where, the, where the gaps are. And that's one of the best things you can do for somebody. It's so true because you're taking the time to show you care. Because like, especially like when you go through that trough of sorrow, it can be lonely as a founder. So you kind of like reach for straws to, yeah. to get some support in whatever fashion. But Brian, man, I, I've learned a lot talking to, to you, man. It's super inspiring and, and, and impressive. But if people want to learn more about you, about GreenPal, where should we direct them? Yeah. Well, first off, Jim, thanks for having me on. I, I've enjoyed it. Anybody that doesn't want to waste time mowing their own yard, just go to greenpal.com <laughs> or anybody that wants to make a living mowing grass. If you're in that business, you can go there as well and sign up. Anybody wants to hit me up, find me on Instagram, Brian M. Clayton. Just drop me a DM there. Awesome. Well, Brian, thanks again for the time. Thanks, Jim. I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.